My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Season 2. It seems to have gone by very quickly, for me at least. I hope you found it worthwhile so far, and I still have two great interviews for you before we wrap up the season. This week, I'm delighted to introduce you to Sarah Milne-Rowe, one of the top performance coaches in the UK, who's here to talk about what it takes to take care of yourself in the pursuit of of your creative and professional ambitions. Sarah works with high achievers in various fields, from the creative industries to other business sectors and also elite athletes. And she has some surprising insights into the hidden obstacles that can trip you up while you're fixated on achieving your ambitions. Sarah has recently published her first book, The Shed Method, Making Better Choices When It Matters. And she also shares what it's been like to go through the process of writing her book and making that transition from practitioner to author. So this one will be of particular interest if you're going through a similar process yourself, whether that involves writing a book or launching a podcast or a video channel or becoming a public speaker or anything else where you're stepping into the spotlight. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to say a few words about money and how the way you think about money can have a subtle but significant influence on your income. Today's theme is Stop trying to earn money. Start creating value. You may not always be aware of it, but you create your own reality every moment of the day through the words you speak, the words you write, Even the words you think to yourself. One of the things we're really good at as human beings is telling ourselves and each other stories about the way the world is, where it came from, what it all means, and what our place is in the grand scheme of things. Take money, for instance. You're probably familiar with the story that we all have to earn money to survive. It's a story that fits the facts pretty well. If you're living in a society that uses money to allocate resources, then it will be awkward, to say the least, if you find yourself short of cash at the end of the month. But watch out for that little word, earn. Its meaning seems obvious enough, but if you think about it, it could really mean just about anything. Look at all the different things people do to earn money and you'll see what I mean. And the connotations of earning money can be very insidious and disempowering. When you think about earning something, you probably think about putting in a lot of hard work and effort, even suffering. You might also think about whether you deserve something, or whether it's fair for you to receive it. So as long as you tell yourself you have to earn money, You're living in a world of hard work, drudgery, and suffering. 
Money is tied to effort, so it feels somehow wrong to earn it without putting in a lot of effort. So on the one hand, you can feel guilty if you find yourself earning a lot of money without working really hard and suffering a lot, or even while enjoying yourself. And on the other hand, you can easily and mistakenly assume that simply working harder will bring you more money. I've fallen into this trap several times, working really hard inside a system that wasn't working. The harder I pushed, the faster my wheels would spin, but I wasn't gaining any traction. But if you forget about earning money and focus on creating value, you enter a different world. A world where your income is not tied to the effort you put in, but to the value you create for others. Whether that value is practical, financial, emotional, or experiential. In this world, a single painting can be sold for millions of dollars. A single song or book or movie can touch millions of hearts and sell millions of copies. One of the wonderful things about being a creative is that there is virtually no limit to the value you can create for others, and therefore, potentially no limit on the money you can generate. Just look at the money created by the most successful painters, designers, actors, musicians, authors, architects, entrepreneurs, and other types of creator. So forget about earning money. It feels too much like hard work. Instead, focus on creating value, also known as what you can do for other people. And start to ask yourself different kinds of questions. For instance, what's the most valuable part of my work? Who values it the most? How is it valuable to them? Artistically? Emotionally? Practically? Or in some other way? What else could I create? That these people would value even more. Are there more people like this who would also value my work the way these ones do? How can I reach these new people? Write these questions down and pin them up above your desk. Look at them every day for a week, and write down all the answers that come to mind. Notice what a difference this makes to your mood and your energy. Not just in terms of the quality of your ideas, but also to your mood and your energy. If you're enjoying the twenty-first century creative. You may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the Twenty-First Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the twenty-first century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school. On your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft, things like how to manage your time, 
how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Sarah Milne Rowe is one of the leading performance coaches in the UK and the founder of the company Coaching Impact. She works with senior leaders in the creative and media industries, education, startups, and also with female entrepreneurs. She's also the author of The Shed Method, Making Better Choices When It Matters, where she shares the principles and techniques she uses to help her clients perform at their best under pressure. Like all top coaches, Sarah enlists the help of other coaches to help her reach her own goal. So when she signed a publishing deal for The Shed Method, she came to me for help in getting the book written, and also with making the transition from coach to writer, because she saw that, as a coach who writes books myself, I'd been through the same process she was going through. As I worked with Sarah and read the successive drafts of her book, I was struck by the down-to-earth nature of a lot of her advice for top performers. Things like getting a good night's sleep, staying hydrated, watching your diet, and taking time out to exercise, especially when you're busy. The kind of things it's easy to overlook while you're pursuing your ambitions, especially if you're working on a computer or creating imaginary storytelling worlds, or if you're on a punishing schedule of live performances. Reading the draft of the book, I got a few flashbacks to my own experiences and times where I hadn't taken care of myself very well and had paid the penalty. So I thought it would be helpful to invite Sarah onto the show to share some of the ideas from the book with you. In this interview, Sarah invites you to become a scientist on your own behaviour by observing what works and what doesn't work and experimenting with new ways of doing things. As well as the foundation of shed practices from the book, she gives you a new and user-friendly way of looking at your brain and of working with it rather than against it when you're trying to achieve something extraordinary. She also talks about her experience of going from being a creative practitioner towards becoming a thought leader with a public profile in her industry. So if you're on a similar journey from working alone in your studio or with your clients, to stepping into the public eye in print, online, or in media of any kind, Sarah offers a great example of how to find the inspiration and the courage to go for it. 
Sarah, how did you get into coaching? Hmm. I got into coaching um, from taking my maternity leave, fundamentally, from being a teacher. And a very dear friend of mine um, had a few clients that she needed to work with um, on performance skills because my background as a drama teacher and also as a sort of director and passion for performance, she felt that I would be um, a useful person to step in and take over some of her clients who had a very specific request at that time um, to be stronger at presenting. Um, and so I did that. And what I found really interesting about that exercise was that some people um, had other things that were getting in the way of their, their, um, their presence or their gravitas or their ability to, to have the impact that they wanted. And um, so I thought, okay, I, I'd like to understand how I can be more useful to these people and have a few tools up my sleeve. Um, I already had a few tools up my sleeve from teaching and also from brilliant teachers that had helped me be better at the violin and a, a better as a dancer. Um, and so I, I decided to um, train to be a coach. That was about 15 years ago. Um, and then just got really fascinated um, with collecting the most useful tools along the way from various different approaches, uh, which led me to being um, a performance coach now. And I intentionally call myself a performance coach because I have got better at things through someone nudging me who has an idea of what good looks like. And so um, I feel that that's sort of what I do now is I help people um, to discover what works for them and then nudge them to stick to and experiment further with some of those um, practices. And you do that across quite a range of different types of client, don't you? You work with people in the business world, people in sports, some perform artistic performers, is that right? Yes. So um, I, I do a lot in corporations working with sort of leaders and their teams, but equally learn a lot with and from high performers in other areas of life. So I work quite a bit with actors and people that have uh, got to quite a high level in a particular skill and learn from them really to understand what it is that they're doing that lets them and allows them to get even better at what they do. So yes, sport is a huge uh, source of useful uh, data and intelligence as is theater, as is performance, as is anyone who's good at anything to be honest, Mark. Yeah, I mean, we've all, we've all got to kind of put on a performance when it comes to Monday, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, you're working with clients who are at the top of their game, whether that's business, sport, or another arena. And, you know, these are the kind of people who, I'm guessing, very goal-focused, aiming at the pinnacle of achievement. And yet, one of the things that really strikes me about your book is how you start with the real fundamentals in our lives, boring everyday things like sleep and mm -hmm. hydration and diet. I mean, what, why start there when your focus is high performance? Hmm. Um, because there's not a high performer that I've ever worked with who on some level doesn't pay attention to those very basic things. And often the people that I'm working with have forgotten to pay attention to some of those basic things. Mm -hmm. And as um, consequence... They uh, suffer up the chain. I call it a chain, really. So for me, the foundation, the reason I've called the book The Shed Method is, like any shed, sheds need maintenance. Um, otherwise, <laughs> uh, they get, you know, 
they fall apart or, you know, the, 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 the hinges on the doors become rusty or the key doesn't turn in the lock. And they're, so therefore the great tools that you've got inside the shed, you can't get to um, and they begin to get rusty. Um, so for me, that sort of metaphor of let's look after the basic foundation. And when you look after the best basic foundation, the other tools that we have inside us are much easier, easier to access and are normally um, much sharper in the way that we use them. So, so often, however senior the person is that I'm working with or however great and successful they are, it often comes down to some very basic fundamental practice that they have been neglecting, which would help them. Um, achieve what they thought they'd come to me wanting to get support with. Yeah, I'm getting flashbacks to quite a few episodes in my own life where I've forgotten this. And, you know, I see it quite a lot with creatives that it's so easy for us to be focused on the big exciting goal, which of course is is understandable, but you've got to make sure you, you, you're going to be able to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And And sometimes it's sort of quite surprising how fundamental and how um sort of simple that reminder can be i mean i say simple and fundamental it's not necessarily easy but sometimes people just look at me and go yeah actually do you know what it's hard for me to think about this particular problem or this particular issue or think this through because i'm fundamentally exhausted or um you know i've been on the hoof for the last three days uh, back-to-back meetings or back-to-back rehearsals or dealing with this tricky person or uh, trying to sort that out with my family as well as do this. And and actually, I call it properly selfish, um, that the properly selfish area of your life is is being neglected. Um, and I like, I like the phrase prop- properly selfish. Um, I think having selfish uh, is has got bad press. I'm sort of championing the word selfish. I think it's very important uh, because we cannot be great for ourselves and we certainly can't be great for others if we haven't got our properly selfish routines working for us. So it's like on the aeroplane when they tell you to put your own mask on first and then, exactly. yeah, and yet because yeah. we're not in an aeroplane that's crashing, we don't tend to, you know, it's easy to forget that. Yeah. It really is. And sometimes I get clients who, who, who focus on one area of their shed thinking almost like I'm, I'm thinking of a particular client who who was trying to make quite a fundamental decision about whether to take a job abroad or not. And that would have meant, you know, huge consequences on her family. And we had been talking about shed and she sort of proudly said, it's all right. I'm going to the gym in a minute, Sarah. And I've got the whole of my exercise routine really sort of down to a T. And, and I just had a really strong feeling that this woman was just plowing even harder at her shed. Right. And um, I said to her, you know, what about just possibly just relaxing and maybe resting and going to bed early tonight as opposed to going to the gym? And she just teared up and said, you know what, that's absolutely what I need to do. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes you're applying the attention to, again, in a way, striving even harder <laughs> um, on the wrong part mm-hmm. or, the, diff- or the, most, the less useful part of your shed. Yeah. Uh, mm. Neglecting a, a really much more important and fundamental part. So what exactly is the shed? I mean, the book's called The Shed Method, and I know this is fundamental to your work with clients. Could you just talk us through what what shed stands for? Yes. So, yes, for those of you who have absolutely no idea what it is, it stands for sleep, hydration, exercise and diet. Um, If it had made a different word, I would probably have preferred to have called diet nutrition, but um, didn't make as much sense. Shen. Um, Yes, (laughs) shen. And the reason it's called that is because putting the effort into getting better at anything is a lot tougher if if our shed is out of order. It's it's the basic foundation, really, for our 
application of getting better because, and I say getting better because uh, you know, Mark, that um, there was an option of, of calling the book Better Better Me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to call it that initially, and that's certainly how I wrote it, in fact, was, or started to write it, was because wishing to be better at something is probably it lies at the heart of most of the conversations I have with people, whether they want to be um, better at saying no or whether they want to be better at you know, being creative uh, at a particular time every day or whether they want to have um, more productive conversations with people or whether they want to be better at just switching off. It's normally better than, better, better at something lies at the heart of it. And, um, and I've just realised over sort of thousands of hours of coaching people who want to be better at things that, that shed, it comes, there's no point in looking up the chain if we haven't really got our basic things in place. And, and, I, and I call and I like the word practice because I think on the whole, it is a practice and it does take deliberate effort to be better at something. And, it, and the effort involved in being better at something relies on us being well fueled. And shed is basically about fueling ourselves. And, you know, not only is it about, I think, making an effort ourselves, but a lot of this is really going against the prevailing culture, isn't it? I mean, there's this real macho cult, for instance, of managing on not much sleep. Yeah. And we hear about yeah. Margaret Thatcher and other great, supposedly great leaders boasting about how little sleep that they need. And yet there's a lot of research coming out now showing that quite the reverse is true, that it's, it really does not enhance your performance if you're sleep deprived. Yes, absolutely. And, and I suppose my ambition for the book is, you know, I'm not a sleep hydration exercise or, or diet specialist. There's, as you say, there's lots of research coming out of there to help us. But it's, it, I want the book to be like a practical, useful book to, in, as you've just said, a world of sort of increasing demands and competing priorities and constant distractions. You know, when we're trying to be better in, a, in an area, be it a creative area or, or even a strategic decision or even just being a better mum or dad or a better friend, it does take some effort. And where we apply that effort and where we apply our attention... Is, is tougher because we're bombarded with choices about what we could be doing and, and understanding what actually fundamentally matters to us is important. And then when, when we've done that, I, I sort of want this book to be a practical, useful sort of manual to say, OK, let me remind myself of what I really want to be, who I really want to be, what I want to achieve, what really matters in my life and how can I apply the effort against those things as opposed to spreading my effort in places where actually I don't really intend, I I hadn't intended to. I just find myself doing it because it's easier. So I'm just trying to imagine somebody listening to this and thinking, okay, that's, that's fine. That's all very well. But I know I can be my own worst enemy. I I'm Mm. so obsessive about my work as a creative. I love it so much. I don't want to stop. Mm -hmm. Maybe I have a very demanding boss or demanding clients, or I feel that, uh, I have an audience that there's people that I don't want to let down with my work in some way. And it's really easy for me to get caught up and forget about eating properly and sleeping. You know, I can work late into the night. I don't go to the gym. I end up not eating the best food. Well, I mean, really, what what difference will it make to me if I start prioritizing all of this? Well, the simple answer is that I don't know. Um, but what I would say to them and what I would say to a client is have a go, experiment. I'm in the business of, of, of helping people be a scientist on their own behaviour. And, and actually, until you try something else, you will never know. So 
if it's working for you, fine. Um, I suspect that you could, it could work for you better, but that would be my suspicion, but mm -hmm. why not try it? So I would say to, say to that person, let's just take one thing that you would like to pay more attention to. Um, and I think the important thing here, Mark, is to do it when you're not under pressure. So it's, it's to almost right. work on your plan when you're not in that moment of, oh my God, I could be doing this. And I've got to keep on planning on it. It's one o'clock. I've nearly done f my extra 5,000 yeah. words that I've set myself today, but I've only done, you know, four and a half thousand and I've got to keep going until I do those extra 500. Mm -hmm. I don't care that it's one o'clock in the morning. So when you're in that space, you, it's very, very hard to stop the, the old habit. Mm -hmm. I think what's really important and what I often do with clients when they're out of that situation is to say, right, okay, so let's just think of one thing that you want to pay attention to and be more deliberate about. And then let's plan, plan it out of pressure. Because when you've planned it out of pressure, it's so much easier to go into that uh, with that plan in mind. So if you're going to say to yourself, right, I'm going to stop, say writing. So for me, I, I've been on a real journey with this, as you know, over the last two years about working out what is the most useful practice for me. Mm -hmm. And I started by saying, right, that's my book day. I'm gonna write yeah. in that book day. And it would be five o'clock on that book day. And I hadn't had one single idea that I could actually write down or even justify myself having a book day. And, and I could find myself being completely and thoroughly uptight increasingly between five o'clock onwards because I hadn't in my, I just chastised myself for not using it effectively. And then I realized that actually on the days when I was working with clients, I sometimes had my best ideas for my book. So... I, I just started to carry a little book around with me so that I could capture those ideas when I was on the hoof and also took the whole pressure of those book days out of my head. So what I said instead was, OK, on those book days, I'm going to make sure that I'm stimulated. Because actually sitting down with the pressure mm -hmm. of writing a book is not working for me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so just saying on those book days, I'm going to a have half a day instead of a whole day and I'm just going to fill it with stimulation. So I might go and have a coffee nearby and read a magazine or have a great conversation with someone that really gets my thinking going and uh, just see what happens in, in, that, in that moment and just play with it as opposed to thinking, OK, I can only do something when I'm under pressure. So my, the, my, short, my shorthand on this is have a plan, pay attention to something very simple out of the pressure moment and then when the pressure moment comes, apply it. And I love that phrase you use, being a scientist on your own behaviour. Mm. What do you mean by that? I mean, stop beating yourself up when things don't work out the way you want it to work out. Yeah. And instead, become curious and say, isn't that interesting? Today, that didn't work for me. Right. What one thing could I do to try out a different plan that might have a different result? And just shift like a little part of the jigsaw. And then try that for the next three days and say, does that make a difference? Um, but it's stopping that voice in your head that goes, well, that's hopeless. That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I can't write. I mean, I love this because it gives us a third option. Because, you know, I think a lot of the time we're either head down working flat out at something or if we do kind of step outside ourselves for a moment, it's usually to criticise. Yes. Say, oh, well, I, you messed that up. Why am I no good at this? Well, what's the point of this? But you're suggesting there's another place you can go to that's maybe looking with curiosity. Mm. Yes. And it's, well, what can I learn about what I did here? Yes. And again, you have to plan that you're going to do that. 
because then when that moment comes, you can go, right, this is the moment, and I'm going to just stop, press pause, and think, that's really interesting. Let me take a note here. What, what led up to that? What could I do? What little shift could I do and have a go differently next time? Mm-hmm. And the other thing, just whilst we're talking about this, that I think is hugely undervalued is spending some time being a scientist on your successes yeah. and getting curious about, actually, why did that work so brilliantly? Yeah. What, what are the conditions in this moment of success that I want to remember and reapply? And I'm often working with people who are doing something really well and they've sort of just said, yeah, that, all that worked and now I'm on to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and my role is often to sort of gently lift their head back to where they did it really well and get a bit scientific on that. Say, so what, what was showing up in that success moment? And what's interesting when people do that, I think, is they notice the impact just remembering that successful moment can have on them in terms of their energy. Um, so I sometimes see them f- physically change because they are dissecting a moment of success as opposed to dissecting a moment of failure. <laughs> yeah. And I might just say, hang on a second, just look at yourself now. Look, look. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, tell me what's going on for you now. Tell me, what are you feeling right now? And they'll go, actually, do you know what? I'm feeling okay. That's, 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 that's quite good. I, I'd forgotten that, that I felt so good about that. So there's something here, a principle of actually... Um, our natural propensity as human beings is to focus on what's always going wrong. But actually, when we can be a bit more deliberate about paying attention to what's going well, it can really benefit because there is only actually one, in my view, confident place you can get confidence, and that's from your past. Mm-hmm. So what's the practice of looking back in terms of understanding how you can buoy the future? So, you know, you've given two or three examples of where you've given feedback to a client based on either the tone of their voice or their posture or some other element of the body language. It's like you're feeding back to them, like the client who was going to work really, really hard at taking time off this evening or, you know, going to the gym. Yes. And you could tell from the tone of voice, actually, no, that's not where she needed to be. Yeah. It just felt like she was putting a huge amount of pressure on herself. Right. So, again, again you know, I'm hearing you're doing this brilliantly for your clients. You're being that curious, compassionate pair of eyes and ears in their yes. life. And maybe the challenge of being a, a scientist on our own behavior is to develop that for ourselves, a, a yes. self-awareness that isn't critical. Yes, absolutely. And that, that can become a sort of ritual for people. They can sort of decide, okay, for half an hour at the end of each day, I'm going to go into a place um, that I enjoy which is increasingly it's outside for a lot of people and just reflect on the day. And I'm going to make a point of reflecting on two or three things that have gone really well that I want to bank. A phrase I like using is let's bank that Mm. Um, because people move on and forget. But if you mark it, you know, like a word like a mark or bank it and, and many different people have different ways of doing that. I mean, I talk in the book about trophy cabinets but uh, you know I've got a client at the moment who's got a yay book yay moment book you know it's just how do you how do you ritualize when things are going well so that you can bank the things that you're already doing Um, and I would really encourage people to do that first before then becoming curious on what could be even better because our natural propensity is to go to well I could have done that better yeah but if we start with actually I'm already doing that quite well let me understand how and then you go to, oh, let me get curious about if I was to do that one thing a little bit better, how might I do that? 
So I think it's, it's really ritualizing it and giving yourself a little practice. And I like the word practice because when I think of getting better at dancing in my life or getting better at the violin or even getting better at a teacher, it, it, the, the moments that did it for me was, was understanding how I could, having some really ritualistic moments by my teachers and by the nature of the lesson, they helped me think, right, okay, what am I going to do with that? You know, you, didn't, you don't go as an actor into the theatre without doing the main... If, if, if the director's giving you notes, you don't... Your, their expectation is that you come to the next rehearsal having listened to those notes mm-hmm. and done yeah, something yeah. with them, right? Yeah. And actually, if you haven't, then you're a bit of a lazy performer. Mm-hmm. And yet, in our lives, we're repeating often things that we know fundamentally are not the most useful things for us, and yet we carry on doing it. So what's our little note-taking space for us to become a a curious scientist on our own behaviour. How can we make it fun? And sort of just a little moment in the day where we go, "Hmm, let me have a look at that. How did I do there? What could I do? Just keeping it light to, to reduce that very, very strong inner critic that we all have. Great. Another nice thing about this book is the way you take some quite complex information or areas of experience and boil them down into some beautifully simple and memorable images. So you have the shed. Yeah. Um, you also have a quite nice way of thinking about the brain. Yes. Could you share that, please? So, um, yeah, I can. So I suppose most... So the reason I talk about the brains as three rather than one is that the clients that I've worked with over the years have found it quite useful to think of themselves of having three brains rather than one brain. And I call these three brains your reptile brain, your dog brain, and your human brain. And if we talk very briefly about each of them, the human brain is the one that, you know, keeps us brilliant. Um, It does extraordinary things and has evolved over time to help us deal with this increasingly complex environment and helps us thrive in it. And what I notice is that most of us think that we're using that brain all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one. It's the one that, that that puts effort into things. It's the one that keeps us going, uh, driving us forward in the doing, and the thinking, and the rational. All yes. of those wonderful things that we do. But what's interesting is that that we've got two other brains that sit underneath it. Um, reptile, which is. Uh, the oldest part, which we share with reptiles fundamentally, which is the channel from our body up to the brainstem, which is looking out for fundamentally four Fs, whether someone's a friend, whether someone's a foe, if someone's if it's something to eat, and the other one beginning with F, which is part of our procreation. It's very, very basic uh, brain looking after those things and also looking out of our conscious awareness at our basic needs. So it's the one that digests our food. It just helps our heart pump it. It does all those wonderful things that we don't have to think about, thank goodness. And at its best, our reptile brain is just chugging along, looking after the basic things. But the important things to remember is it's very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And it also works out of our conscious awareness. So it's the one that uh, flushes us red when we say something embarrassing at at a meeting. Or it's the one that makes our our, uh, belly sink to the bottom of our boots. Um, when we're nervous or it's, it's those bodily inst- it's the instinctive bodily reactions which we have no control over it's a wonderful also source of um, communication from our gut and our heart so it's reading what's basically going on in our gut and our heart and channeling it up to its co-partner which is the dog brain which is the hub of our emotional center 
and the dog brain is making meaning of those physical sensations. And I like, in the book I talk about us having sort of three fundamental reactions as a dog. We either bark, we either cower, or we um, wag. <laughs> and they are pretty basic, and uh, we, and again, we, they're very fast. So yeah. um, the, the, the reptile is giving us a, a physical sensation. So it's that thing like, you know, when you see someone you don't really like, and you've got a feeling in your stomach already, and it happens incredibly quickly. And that gets channeled up to our dog brain. The dog brain is thinking, oh, is this a good thing? Or is this a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Is this person good in your life? Is this person bad in your life? And they work together. And the dog brain is very quickly analysing all your past experience and deciding whether it's a threat or a reward. And this is all happening sort of out of conscious, semi-autonomous, the dog is really. And it's working much faster than your human brain. And sometimes it bosses your human brain. And basically it says, actually, we don't need you, human brain. We'll make this decision which is when we bark yeah. and we have a gut-to-gob response to something which we've not been thought through. It's come out of our mouth before we've thought about it and it's out there because on some fundamental level, it always has a positive intent for us, mm -hmm. by the way, mm -hmm. but it does a blurt. And the thing that the one that I'm really increasingly interested in in clients actually is the wag, mm -hmm. which is that moment where you say, yeah, I'll do that. And then you walk away and think, why did I say that? I, I didn't, I haven't got any time to do that. I've just, said that because I wanted to make that person feel good. So you're a wagger because you're pleasing others. Or you're pleasing yourself because it gives you a very sort of rewarding feeling in the moment, but fundamentally it's an unrealistic reward. And I suppose why, why clients that I find this useful is it just helps them understand what is happening and why uh, and how their dog brain is showing up. So I mean, I've got teams where they basically have a fun game now and they say, oh, sorry, that was my dog brain speaking. Or I think that was your dog brain mm -hmm. that just mm -hmm. uh, reacted there. And then that invites the human brain back into the equation. So these three brains sit at the heart of the book because when they're working together, they're fantastic. And often we aren't working as a unified team we're letting one lead us because it's simpler and it's less effort. Um, so I talk about the three brains as sort of the protagonists of the book and then we have a supporting cast of five energies that enable these three brains to work tightly together as a team. Okay, well, let's just keep the five energies out in the wings just for the moment because I'm curious about getting the principal actors working yes. together. Because it strikes me that this is really important for creativity. Yep. We are not purely rational beings particularly no. when we're creating we need to have our our heart and our, our gut aligned yeah. as well yeah. you know if something's going to be authentic and meaningful and it's going to come from that deep place of you know the essence of who we are so i mean how can creators use these three brains or how should they be aware of them in their work so i think if we go back to shed in a way mm -hmm. um the reptile and the dog brain are happy doing what they do brilliantly if they're well fed and well looked after so having some ways to be well fueled so that you are eating well and you are drinking with your water and you are satisfying your reptile brain with shed mm -hmm. then it will just carry on usefully getting you to where you need to go with the energy that you need that then calms your dog brain. So the dog brain is just chugging along, 
looking out for some very useful gut quick instincts, which creativity, as you've just said, Mark, really depends on. And then you've got your human brain to check it um, and verify it because, and I mean, I've had many debates about this, about gut instinct and gut reactions, particularly when you're creative, when your creativity juices are running. How do you make sure that the three are talking to each other very, very well? When, when you're talking about people and gut instincts around people, it's risky, just to, in my view, just to trust your gut. Um, I think we need our human brain to come in to check and verify that what you think about that person or what you think about that intervention is actually what your gut is telling you. But I think in terms of um, when I've seen people be on in flow, you know, when people talk about being yeah. in flow, you've got, for me, when people are in flow, you've got those three, you've got the other two fast systems just gently doing what they do really usefully underneath your brilliant human brain, which is putting in the effort to think things through and create fantastic ideas and join the whole thing up. So fundamentally, you need three of them. And if you haven't got those other two calm and well-nourished, it's unlikely that you're going to get the benefit of all three. Yeah, I mean, because I can certainly, I'm thinking about flow in my own life as a writer, you know, there are some days where I'm scratching my head and really trying to work stuff out. I guess that's just the human brain trying to do it all itself. And it's very different to the experience of flow where you get the sense that, well, the words are coming from somewhere that I'm not entirely sure where. Yeah. And yeah. they really mean there's something important about them. You know, mm. there's, there's, it's heartfelt, meaningful, whatever you want to describe it as. And I really do feel it's my body doing the writing. Yeah. yeah. I completely relate to that. It's, uh, and, and it's the magic, isn't it? It's, it's the moment where you can't actually articulate how it's happening, but it's happening. Yeah. Um, but for, for, me it's, for me, it's having the pressure off. Mm. And that's where... That's where letting, letting it go and stepping away from the pressure you're placing on yourself is a very, very important part. Well, it certainly was a very important part of my, of my way of working, was to make sure that I had those moments to capture the, the thoughts when they fly in and then they equally fly out if you haven't got a way of capturing it. Um, but I know that if I didn't look after my shed, those moments were less available to me. Yeah. And I also know that if I didn't have my inner voice supporting that process um, in a curious and light way, I was less effective as well. And that's where I had to pay attention. And then I had triggers that would help me do that. But it's, it, seeing the three brains working as a team was a really, really helpful metaphor for me. So maybe now we can invite the supporting cast onto the stage. So these are the, the five <laughs> energies that support the three brains. Talk, tell us what the five energies are. So there's three internal and there's two external. Mm -hmm. So the three internal energies that match and certainly help the, um, the brains. Are, so shed is fundamentally body energy. It's saying, have I got the body energy that my tank properly fueled with my sleep, uh, my drinking, my water, my uh, exercise. And that, by the way, can be movement. It doesn't necessarily have to be high energy down the gym, you know, for 10K, 10K runs. It's just, do I move my body enough to make sure that I'm on top form? Um, because the reptile brain 
needs body energy. So body energy fuels the reptile brain, which then calms the dog brain to provide the most useful mood energy. So the third, the second energy is mood energy. Um, and I like the phrase uh, that you can choose your mood. Mm-hmm. And so too often I'm working with people who are just playing victim to the fact that the mood is choosing them. So a lot of the work that I do with clients is helping them have a practice to shift their mood or shift their state. Okay, then. So I, I, I'm, I'm in a really grumpy mood today, Sarah. How, how are you going to get me out of it? Or how you, do I get myself out of it? Okay, so I'd first of all, start with the chain that we know. Get your body, so move, mm-hmm. Mark. Move away from the chair or the, where the place you're feeling grumpy. Leave it behind. Okay. Um, and then here's a, a few things you could try. Imagine there's an energy that comes from the floor right the way through your body and up through the top of your head and you are about half an inch taller. Pull your shoulders back. Jump up and down. Slap yourself around the face gently in a nice, kind way. Jump up and down. Walk out. Walk up and down the street. Anything. Jump up. Just move your body. All right. All right. You've got me laughing. It's hard to stay grumpy, I must admit. There you go. So, so that would be the first thing. Um, and another thing that you can do to choose your mood Actually, there are two things that reduce you to neutral, get you back to neutral where you can choose. So often I'm working with people who get themselves into an unhelpful state and they feel caught up in that mood so much so that they can't escape from it. Two things, in my view, get you back to neutral. Moving your body, mm-hmm. so you mm-hmm. literally shift yeah. it. Yeah. And then the second one is your breath. To me, breath is the most fantastic resource that we have. It costs nothing and we, unless we are training to sing or play a musical instrument or or using your breath for exercise, we very rarely pay as much attention to it. So you can shift your mood with your breath. So one, there's two ways of doing that. You can either increase your energy, your mood energy, by panting. Mm -hmm. And so um, a way of doing that is to imagine that you've got a candle in front of you and you are panting at the candle five times, uh, but you're, you're inhaling and exhaling. So you're going... Like that. I don't know if that comes out in this recording, but That's it's great. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so you're doing that, and that can up your energy. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got clients who literally go into a room and jump up and down and imagine they've got five imaginary candles which they're blowing out very, very loudly, uh, usually privately, not in in public. Um, or if you're if you're if you feel yourself under pressure, um, you can exhale slowly through your mouth. And then you can reduce and bring your human brain back into play. Because under pressure, what the science tells us is that the dog brain, the reptile brain, take over and they shut the human brain down. So in the brain scans, you see that the blood is not getting to the prefrontal cortex when you're under great stress or pressure. So when you breathe slowly out, you're almost tricking your brain to say, hang on a second, this, this person can't be under that much pressure because she or he is managing to slowly breathe out because if you were really under pressure in a life or death situation you wouldn't have time to take time to do a slow exhalation so just thinking about and i I offer this as three in through your nose three beats in through your nose so you're going in through your nose for three and then you're breathing slowly out through your mouth for seven and i work with people who can do that on their own in a meeting with nobody else knowing that they're doing it. So if someone is irritating them or they are feeling under pressure to speak, 
or they haven't got an idea and other people are speaking and they feel they should have an idea and they can feel that reptile and dog brain whirring away with their physical sensations, they can privately just think about three in through the nose, seven slowly out through the mouth. And that can re return them to neutral, where they have a moment of choice. Right. And they right. can then choose the mood they want to continue with. Right. And I would offer three things, Mark, that you can easily think of to shift your mood. One of them is going back to appreciation and remembering when you're great and when you've done something tricky like this in the past and know that you have the resources internally to deal with that. So, you know, having a proud story to mind is a really, really useful mood shifter. And there's, that's I learned very much from high performers is, they, you know, they don't go into their major events thinking about the last time they messed up. It's an absolute high-performing practice to think about when they have done well. So let's nick it when we're trying to manage ourselves in the moments that matter to us. So there's appreciation of when you've been good and strong and proud. And then sometimes that's helped by having a trigger. So I have a ring, a meditation ring that says, um, on the silver it says, you have everything you need within. So for me, that's a very helpful trigger to touch, to think, well, I can, I'm, I'm, I've got this mood. I can shift it. I've got what I need. Um, I have a client who, you know, has a very, very bad temper. Um, and um, particularly with two or three people that he works with, they can irritate him very quickly. And, uh, but he has got one memory of having a very, very productive conversation with this tricky person. And he had it in the back of a cab, uh, a black cab in London. So he has a simple toy, a black cab toy that sits on his office desk. And when the number of that person comes in on his phone, he takes a look at that black cab and reminds himself of when he's had a very productive conversation with him in the past. And that's helpful for him to shift his mood or choose his mood. So it's just being very deliberate about how I'm going to choose my mood. And this is so important because if you're listening to this and you're a creative professional, then choosing your mood, managing your mental and emotional and physical state is part of your job. Yeah. For me as a writer, I need to be able to switch off from everything else in my life if it's going to be a good morning of writing today. Yeah. I need to be in, I need to be 100% there for my client when I walk through the door for the session or I switch on Skype. Yeah. If I'm reading my poems on stage or I'm speaking at a conference, I've got to be completely on it. I can't just walk out and say, I'm sorry, I'm in a bit of a bad mood today. And it's not, <laughs> you know, No. and I have clients who have to do this on stage, on TV, on the radio, wherever. Yeah. And this is one thing I really notice about top creative performers is they take care of this stuff. They have yeah. their ritual, their routine. And so if this is you and you can think of that time in your life when you really need to be on it, mm. Go back, rewind the last five minutes of this call because Sarah's just given you a great menu of options of little techniques that you can use that will give you more choice, more control of, of how you feel, what your mood is, and therefore how you perform better. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And some people use a chain of all five of those. That's sort of their practice. And others just choose one that that's all they need. So it might just be a self-taught mantra that is enough for them to connect to and they can shift it. I mean, I know for myself, working in very challenging comprehensives in the very first part of my career, if I had a terrible lesson, 
I could I could see the next class coming up the stairs as I was just trying to recover <laughs> from the last 30 people who had just almost demolished me walking down the stairs. And I had to, it was my only survival technique. I had to find some way of shutting that yeah. door. It was just 30 seconds and think, right, Sarah, out, out of that class into this one. Hello, with a smile to the next right. 30 people that were coming in. So I know that you can do this. I know that people can do it. It's just uh, knowing the most useful way for you. And that's when you go back to being a scientist. Have a play. And if you're a performer of, or an artist of any kind and you think you've got a tough audience to please, imagine what it's like having a class full of 14-year-olds coming up the stairs towards you. <laughs> yes, I know. You know. No corporate person is ever as scary, I can tell you, as a 14-year-old uh, difficult teenager. <laughs> so, Sarah, you know, you've made quite a few transitions in your career. You, you know, you've been, you've worked in the theatre, you've worked as a teacher, now you're a coach. And more recently, you've gone through the transition from being a coach, a, a practitioner, to being an author. I have. And to showing up in a more public way in your yes. role. Yes. What, what has that process been like for you because I know there'll be a lot of people listening to this who've either gone through it in some form or maybe facing it and it may not be a book it may be uh their music it may be a podcast it may be YouTube or some other form of video or, or whatever but there's that that wall of, you, you go through when you go from being a, a private person a private maker or practitioner to someone in the public eye yeah how's that been for you so far Oh, big learning curve. Um, I tell you what it has done. It's made me really revisit some of the practices I've talked about in the book mm -hmm. for a start in terms of my state management. I mean, for me, the, the shift was writing a book. And what the book did for me was really clarify why I believed what I believed, which one of the energies we haven't really spoken about is the purpose energy, but it reconnected me to purpose and and why this stuff matters to me and um and i suppose when even though there are some scary moments and i'm only just hitting some of them but there's some more coming up about being so sort of uh revealed i think is the word actually mm -hmm. it's it's scary being revealed and standing by openly what you believe to be important what drives me is the fact that Fundamentally, I, I want this sort of um, this practice of self to be back into our young people. So I suppose I'm seeing my career going around and ending up where it began, which is young people. I, I think our young leaders in, in terms of the way they lead themselves is, is really important. And in the world that we're currently living in, managing and knowing how to lead you is increasingly important. I think the humanness of life is, is going to be incredibly important. What's the stuff that robots can't take? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the humanness of us. Um, and so in the transition of becoming more, um, speaking more openly about this stuff, like just doing this, for example, what helps me is connecting to that purpose, that, you know, get to more people, have, have a broader impact, but fundamentally talk from the place that matters to you, which is about practitioning. It's about, I'm a practitioner at heart. I began as a teacher. I, I am a practitioner. I'm not a theorist. And so I want to talk about the practice. What can people do? Uh, how can people play with these ideas of trying things out? So 
So I'm in the middle of this experiment, Mark. If you ask me next year the same question, I'm not sure what the answer would be, but um, I'm, I'm going with it. Let's put it that way. I'm going with it, I'm playing with it, and I'm embracing it as an opportunity to, to see what happens. And, you know, I can hear the energy in your voice as you talk about this. And maybe you could just speak a little bit about the purpose energy, because this is one that isn't, Mm. this is one of the external energies that you talk about. And it's so important. It is. And I think these, the two external energies are people energy and purpose energy. And this, in terms of the transition you've just mentioned, they've both come very to the forefront because they, I realised that one of the toughest things I found about writing was the loneliness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very much a person that, that gets a lot of her creativity and thinking from, from working with and alongside others. So the big challenge, and you remember this, Mark, when I was working with you, the big challenge for me was that getting in my own head and not having others to, to, uh, to work alongside. So, so finding people that stimulate me and, uh, and are boosting my energy is a really important part. And and the purpose energy is what I'm feeling is helping me in this transition. And I think purpose energy is the pen is the energy beyond self-interest. It's right. what am I what what's my big why in the world, really? And, mm. and that sounds really big and you know slightly <sighs> ostentatious. Um and but but actually it, it, it is so helpful and, and I see it in clients that I work with when they can connect to why it fundamentally matters to them and have a way of doing that on a daily basis. They can achieve things that often more than they thought possible. And so that's what having a young person in mind for me is a really helpful motivator. It's a, it's a, it's a purpose energy that gets me to stick with things longer than I thought. It's the thing that gets me standing in front of an audience that I think might be cynical. Um, it's the thing that makes me go for um, an interview in the Telegraph or something like that. You know, it's, it's, if it ultimately impacts a 14-year-old kid with a practice that can help them be stronger and believe that anything, something is more possible than they had initially thought about their potential in the world, then I will do it. And you see, I love when you say it's the energy that motivates you beyond self-interest because then you do the stuff that you don't really want to do. Yeah. Like, in your case, spending a lot of time on your own, yes. <laughs> looking at a screen and writing when you'd rather be out with people. But yeah. when you're connected to the purpose, you can see the value of it. Yes. And, you, and you, you know, we've all got something like that. There's the part that we hate, but actually there's always going to be the part that you hate. If you're really connected to a purpose, you'll do it, whatever yes. it is. yes. And it's, you know, it's, it, it can get, it can, it, actually, it's the one energy I would say trumps shed f- at times. So it, it is that energy that keeps you going through the night because you're in the flow of something or because you've got a deadline to hit because it matters to the audience that's going to hear that deadline. But you can't do it for long periods of time. Right. It's right. the bit that keeps you up at night when your kids are, you know, ill. Yeah. Um, it's that stuff that will just trump shed for a while, but you have to recover. Mm. I think that's really critical. Yeah, and and I see people not putting in recovery time. Mm. Okay, so on that theme, I think you have a challenge for us, don't you? Well, I do. This is the part of the show where I invite my guests to set a challenge to you, the listener. Mm. That will be on the theme of the interview and something that you can go away and do in the next week or so. So, Sarah, what challenge do you have? My challenge is for you to... Um, look at your shed 
and think about when you're at your best and which part of your shed would benefit from a little bit more attention and how that might measurably impact your productivity or your whatever it is that you're after, whatever better is to you. Okay. And I was, and I, my challenge is that you do this, you pay, you do this one thing every day for the next seven days. And so just to refresh, so shed is sleep, hydration, exercise, exercise and, and diet. diet. Yeah. So we've got to focus on one aspect of those. Maybe yeah. we don't, we're not very good at going to sleep at night. Yeah. We have to stay up and watch movies or. Yes. So you might, yeah. So you might say, I'm going to have a de- deliberate bedtime for the next mm-hmm. seven days. Or you might say, I'm going to actively take a walk um, once a day. Yeah. Or, you know, just give yourself one challenge, but just in one area that you think you, you're just intrigued to see if this, this part of paying more attention would make a difference. And give yourself one baby step. And I intentionally say baby step. So set something that is realistic to apply for the next seven days very deliberately. And at the end of each day, just notice, has it made any useful, measurable impact? Excellent. Thank you, Sarah, so much. You're very welcome. I'd be very interested to know, by the way, if it does, because that's all part of my <laughs> inquiry. <laughs> well, well, send us on 21stCenturyCreative.fm. There's a contact form, so you can okay. let us know how you get on. We'd love to hear. Love that. Love about that. that. So, Sarah, thank you. As always, it's very grounding to listen to you, and I've got. I'm listening to a few things that I think, yeah, maybe I could probably go in do better at that <laughs> in, in my own practices. So. There's the book, The Shed Method. There is. Sarah Milne-Rowe, available from all good bookshops. Where else can people go to find you online? So you can find us, my business, at coachingimpact.com. That's where we work with leaders and teams in organisations. And there's a team of high performers uh, that you'll see when you go on the website. And you can contact me on www.facebook.com slash Sarah Milne-Rowe. And that's Sarah without an H. That is it? Sarah without an H. Absolutely, yeah. And it's Milne, M-I-L-N-E, and then R-O-W with an E on yes, the end. Yes, it is. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sarah. You are more than welcome. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.